Today's episode of Peers to Peers is powered by Shopify, the leading global commerce company that's shaping today's entrepreneurial economy. What started as three mates in a coffee shop trying to sell a snowboard has ended in thousands of employees around the world, bringing over 1.7 million businesses to life. You could say Shopify is a peer to us and entrepreneurs around the world. So peers, if you're looking to start your own business, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidinol, founder of Leading Australian Podcast Agency and 2021 Australian Podcast Awards finalists, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite an inspiring millennial entrepreneur from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way, pursue your passion, and why there's really nothing better. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Think back to your last failure, peers. Does it feel raw, like everyone is still thinking about it? Now try and list three failures that your best friend made this year. It's hard to come up with something, right? In today's episode, powered by Shopify, we hear from the wise Kanan Saleh, an American entrepreneur, co-founder of Halo Cars, and the current GM and head of Lyft Media. Kanan shares the fascinating and comforting spotlight theory of failure. Hint, no one is thinking about your failures as much as you are. Why the safe place of the internet shaped his adult life and the importance of finding meaningful work. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, firstly, welcome. And please do take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us on our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers, without further ado, welcome Kanan. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. Thanks for having me. Awesome. So, you know, you and I recently connected and when I looked into you and all of the amazing work you're doing in business and media, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. I'm happy to to join. Awesome. Cool. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So my name is Kenan and my background, I think what most people will have known me for is I was the co-founder of a company called Halo Cars. 
which was a rideshare advertising startup in the US. And I was the co-founder and CEO of that company. And then I sold that company to Lyft. So after my company got bought by Lyft, it became something called Lyft Media, which is a new business unit within Lyft focused on uh, advertising, transportation advertising products. So, and, and I started that company when I was in college and then I sold it six months after when I was 21. And uh, yeah, so that's, I think how most people know me. And now I work at Lyft. I run the media business at Lyft. So cool, Kanan. Oh my goodness. When I was looking into you, I was like, wow, he did this when he was at college. Like, how is this even possible? Thank you. So I can't wait to dive deeper into your entrepreneurial journey. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yeah, that's a good question. Not many people ask that question. So I grew up in Wisconsin. Wisconsin is a very small state north of Chicago. Some people don't know where it is. It's next to Canada. So I grew up in a very small town in Wisconsin, which was extremely rural. It was less than 40,000 people, to give you a sense. A very, very small town. And I was actually born in New York City, but then my family moved to Wisconsin when I was like two. So I spent most of my, I spent all of my uh, young life that I can remember in Wisconsin. And one of the things about growing up in Wisconsin is that it's a fairly remote state. So you're not necessarily, you don't have as, as many uh, opportunities to meet people or to go to cities or to just explore new things. I think if you grew up in a big city, you have tons of experiences. You can go places. And when you grow up in a small city, there's not many, you know, you, you wake up, you go to school, you come back and that's it. So I think one way that that influenced me a ton is that I spent a lot of time on the internet. Uh, that was one of the few things you can do. So you could you could go on the internet and you could do anything. So I spent a ton of time gaming. I spent a ton of time on YouTube. I spent a ton of time just on the internet broadly. And I think a lot of my interest came from that. So uh, interest in tech in general came from that. I learned most of what I know today, including any coding that I do, even though I'm not great. Everything I learned was online. I learned about kind of uh, colleges online. All of my experiences when I was younger were mostly online because there weren't that many in-person things to do, especially in the winter when it gets cold. So I think that was the biggest influence for me on my life. I find that so fascinating. What did your parents have to say about, you know, this kid just being online 24-7 and not out in the fields or, you know, out there? What influence did your parents have on you during that pivotal time when you were just kind of growing up and figuring out who you were and surfing the net? What was their influence? My parents were mostly, in terms of a parenting style, mostly hands-off, gave me a lot of room to explore, do my own things, and in that sense, gave me a ton of freedom. So they had a lot of influence. I think some of the best influence they had was allowing me to, to giving me the freedom to explore things, and then doing some good things, doing some bad things, at least forming my own experiences and my own intuition. And it wasn't that I was always, you know, I was not like always 100% of the time on the internet, you know, I did obviously school and I did sports and other stuff like that. So I think fairly normal. But if you would compare it to when I talk to my friends who grew up in big cities, they have way more experiences of going to concerts or museums or meeting with friends or going to the nearby city, going on the subway, much more like experiences I'd never had even 1% of or going to like sports games, all these kind of things that just nothing, none of that exists. So much more than a, let's say someone, my parallel, you know, child who grew up in a big city. and 
yeah, so it's kind of like the influence they had was almost not direct influence. It was giving me the freedom, which which indirectly allowed me to become my own person. And I think that was actually the most influential thing they did. Becoming your own person. I love that. And I think so many of us, you know, we struggle with that. We struggle with figuring out who we actually are, what, you know, our, obviously our environment, how we grew up, that influences who we become, you know, for you in those early days what were some of the key things that you learned about yourself and kind of, you know, on a more personal level and kind of how you show up in the world? What were some of those things? And I guess, how do you think that translated into what you ultimately went off to kind of study in college? Mm, Yeah, that's a good question. One thing I would say is that I, most of my interest in technology came from my time spent on the internet. I think almost all of it. And I think it also made me more introverted as well, which has carried on to all sorts of, you know, uh, obviously that's that's a personality trait. So it it's, uh, carries on to every single part of your life. And I think a lot of that personality trait comes from that experience in my life, which, you know, in some ways good, some ways bad. It's not, not all positive necessarily. And on an individual trait basis, I mean, I just did a lot of, weird things on the internet. Like I joined a lot of forums. I participate, I was like part of communities and listservs and I played games with people and I met people around the world. So I was just able to try a lot of different things. And then some of them I liked and then they became big parts of my personality. Some of them I didn't like and they just, I I knew at least that I didn't like it. So I don't know individual, I can't like think of really big things, but I would say it was almost like massive A-B testing. If, you know, in product people do A-B testing where you try different things and you see what works. I think like massive A-B testing in terms of experiences and people I met and I found out what I liked, who I liked Mm. pretty quickly. I love that. I love that like reference to A-B testing. And I think so many of us, unfortunately, are scared to go off and like try new things. And as much as it's like at our disposal, everything's at our disposal these days, like there is still that fear. You know, I definitely felt it when I went off and did something different and started this podcast and started my business or whatever it may be. Yeah. You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who are in this headspace of just feeling a little bit stuck and feeling a little bit like they don't want to A-B test or they don't want to try things out because they're just a bit nervous and afraid that it's not going to work out for them. You know, what advice would you give to us? Yeah, I, I think actually I've been there. I think everyone's been there. It's a very common feeling to have. And the things that have always, or at least like piece of knowledge that have been good for me, one is in psychology, most people have learned about the spotlight spotlight effect where you think people are paying more attention to you than they actually are. And the way I think this manifests is that uh, you think that people notice your failures more than they actually do. So most people, if you think of a friend who has failed or done something wrong um, at any point in, in, your, in their life, you probably either don't know because you can't think of the failures. They don't come to mind quickly. So like you actually don't have examples to pull. Or it's really trivial to you. You can think of, oh, yeah, like you did this one thing, but it completely doesn't matter to you at all. Whereas on the flip side, if you ask that person, it's probably extremely magnified in their from their point of view. They probably think it was this huge thing that everybody saw and was very embarrassing for them. And most people, most other people barely noticed it, if they even remember it at all. So uh, that was one thing for that always made me, like, it made me a lot more bold in trying things and then being willing to fail with the understanding, the logical understanding that nobody really cares. And um, the next level of this is like, you, you also realize nobody really cares about your successes either for the most part. Like just no one really cares what you're doing in general. 
So it actually doesn't matter. So your failures, people forget. Even your successes, people forget. And that's a, a nice psychological hump to get over. And then you just, you know, if you understand that nobody really cares what you're doing and you, you operate like that, then you fail, you succeed. Like you're not as worried about uh, social stigma or anything like this. Mm. When do you think that clicked for you? You know, at what point in your journey did you realize like, oh, well, I can just fail as much as I need to because no one really cares. No one's really watching. It's not something. So I think this is something that uh, at, at different levels, everyone, uh, I, I learn at different levels all the time. So there's some parts of my life where I think I'm probably scared to fail. And not that I've, I've like somehow fixed this in all parts of my life. I think the first part where I noticed it was specifically with startups because uh, part of the reason why people don't like to do startups or are scared to do startups full time is they're scared if they fail. And then it's like, what happens if I fail? If I fail, everyone's going to think I'm an embarrassment and then I'm not going to be able to get a job and this is going to destroy my career. And I had enough experience in college seeing people and my friends be startup founders and seeing other startups, some of them who had failed and then had gone on to do really good things. Or it's like they failed their first startup and then their second startup was really successful. And I just observed that it didn't actually really matter. The first failure was not, no one really cared. Uh, they were able to bounce back and do a second thing very effectively. And it wasn't a major issue for them. So that was the first thing that made me realize, oh, I can do a startup. And if it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. I, I saw this other guy had a startup and it didn't work out. And look, he just went and got a job and he was fine. So that was the first level that I, where I felt it. And that was why I had confidence that I could start a startup. And I felt that even if it doesn't work out, I think I'm capable and I'll work hard and I'll be just fine. That was the first level. So that was like, okay, I can do a startup because no one cares if I fail, really. And then you, you start to see it in other places, really. I think you can see it in every part of life, really. And uh, mostly it's like you see examples of people who have done it and then they're fine. And then you can kind of logically understand that I am actually not any different than that person. And if it wasn't for the fact that I'm myself and I'm, I'm, you know, the one experiencing this, if I was looking from a third person, if I was looking objectively from a third party perspective, these two situations are actually the same. So I should have very similar results of what that person had. That was, that was the biggest thing for me. That's just so valuable. And I just think, you know, especially those of us who are nervous to get out there and actually do that idea or pursue that, you know, pursue that career path or whatever it may be, start that startup. Like, I just think that's just such valuable advice. Oh, so interesting. Okay. So I want to dive a bit deeper into your time at college. So obviously you started your business when you were there, but I think you went to the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business, you'd science and management and I think computer science as well. Talk to us a little bit about your time at college, the early days when you got there. Obviously, you mentioned you were surrounded by people who were entrepreneurial, but I guess what were some of the key things you learned about yourself during that time? The biggest things uh, for me were mostly career-focused, actually, I'd say, because when I had come into college, I had come expecting to study something in science. I expected to go to medical school. I had this idea that maybe I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but it wasn't it wasn't a serious idea. It wasn't an idea that I was acting on. It was just like an idea in the back of my head. So in college, I went from a complete switch and expected career paths and then a switch from this is something that I think I might want to do to something that I am actively doing. And actually, it is the number one thing I'm doing. This is my career. So that was huge in terms of career interest shift. And other things were not as large, actually, I would say like socially or values. A lot of people, their, their values change, I think, in college. Uh, or they, I don't know, they like become more conservative, less conservative. Political views change. There's a lot of other personal things that change in college. For me personally, not that much, actually, I'd say, if I look at all those dimensions, politically, socially, interests, friends, not a ton of change. The biggest change for me was career by far. 
of what my career interest was. So that was the biggest change. And, and it's a very influenced by where I went to school and um, what I studied and the type of people that I, I interacted with. Did you do the course online or did you actually go to Pennsylvania and leave Wisconsin? Yes. Yes, I was in person. Correct. That's also a massive shift. I think, as you mentioned, you know, growing up in that small town where it's like you just go to school, come home, jump on your laptop, you know. Yeah. How do you think that influenced you kind of moving to a bigger city and kind of getting out of your shell that was like kind of your youth, you know? Talk to us a little bit about that. And then I guess for our peers out there listening who are scared to make that shift to a bigger, crazier city or job or career or whatever, you know, what advice would you give to us on just kind of embracing that? It was, like you said, it was a big shift. And it was sort of a big shift, but it sort of wasn't. So it was a big shift objectively because my situation was changing. On the other hand, I was very excited for it. So I was excited to get out. This is something I'd wanted to do for all of high school. So I was excited to move out of Wisconsin. I was excited to join, to go to a big city. So it was exciting uh, change. It was something I was happy about, not like something I was forced into. So uh, the transition was easy because I was excited about it and I wanted to make the transition. So I jumped like feet first into it and I, I was enjoying all of it. And I think it depend, different, there's different perspectives on this. When I was growing up in Wisconsin, most people were excited to get out of Wisconsin because the feeling was like, oh, Wisconsin's like a small state, small, we're in a small city, and I want to go somewhere bigger and better. So most people had that feeling, and there wasn't hesitation. No one was like, oh, I'm scared to go to a big city. Most people did want to go. So, and it was actually more of like who can go and who has the ability to and who has the grades to and stuff like that. So... I did not have to do any convincing of myself to want to do it. I think if you polled my peers in high school, most people would not have to have convincing and most people would have wanted to. So I don't have much experience on that front. I would say one comment though, is that most of the time, I think that change is usually good for people. If you had to make an objective or sort of a, if you had to make a blanket statement um, without any specific examples, usually big changes are good for people because it helps them grow. And changing where you live is one of the biggest changes you can possibly have. So I think if, if you look at it at that level, if, if everyone can agree that it's probably good for you and the change is good for you and this is probably the biggest change you can make, then uh, it should be pretty straightforward that that's a good option to take. Most of the decision making, I think, as well as is being able to take yourself out of your shoes and make the logical objective decision versus the decision that emotionally yeah. feels right. That's that's most of that's a lot of good decision making, I actually think, in my opinion. I actually couldn't agree more. And I think, you know, recently in my life I've I've just moved to Sydney from Melbourne here in Oz. So Melbourne's still a big city. Sydney's another big city, but I've yeah. I've literally in the last month just made that shift. And it's so funny because it's so similar to what you were saying. Like I personally resonate with that on a yeah, on a deep level, because I really wanted to move. You know, I was like months and months of like, yeah. yes, this is going to happen and I can't wait. But it's so funny. As soon as I landed here, there was just a part of me that was almost a bit shook by the fact that it actually happened. And it has taken me, and I think I'm still in it. I've only been here for a couple of weeks, a bit of that like adjustment period of like, whoa, I really wanted to do this thing. And here I am doing this thing and, and like having this massive change. But like, you know, what about my old life? How do I get comfortable in this new environment? If you've got any tips on that, I'd be interested to hear. I don't know if I have great tips there. I, I felt the same thing. I mean, I was happy about it though. It was like, my feeling was it's happening and this is great. This is the thing I wanted to do and I'm doing it. And wow, I feel like, you know, I'm living out what I wanted to do. 
So it was more almost like nostalgia or like happy feelings. And I think all you know transitions are a little bit rough. So there's no really smooth, clean transition. Everything is is a bit rough and not perfect. And that's part of that's part of the process, I think. Mm, I agree. I think it's almost just like acknowledging that and getting your head around it and knowing that it's okay if you don't feel a hundred percent twenty four seven. Yeah, I think that's another thing in general when there's a lot of feelings that are normal to feel that it's helpful if you tell yourself that it's normal to feel. So if you can step out of your body or out of your shoes and you can look at it objectively and you can say, I'm feeling this thing and I'm feeling this thing because of these effects and that is normal and that's part of the process, then you can you can go back in and, and understand that I, that's okay. Like I'm feeling this, but it's okay for me to feel this and then not have an emotional response, have more of a logical response. Yes. Yes. Oh, I love it. Okay. So I want to talk a bit about the transition, the career transition that you mentioned. So you went into college with this headspace of like, yep, I'm probably going to be a doctor. I'm going to study medicine or whatever it may be. And then you ended college literally like six months after selling your startup to Lyft. You know, can you talk to us a little bit about when you had that realization of, oh my goodness, I actually want to be an entrepreneur and this is something I want to try, you know? And then I guess how you let go of that initial vision that you had for, for kind of your life and what you wanted to do. So I had, I had mentioned earlier that there was kind of like, I had some thought of maybe I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And that was actually very early. I mean, that's something I had in, in middle school and high school. Um, I've talked about this a little bit, but in middle school, we had one of those sessions where everybody's supposed to pick their dream job. I don't know. Did you ever do that? Oh, yes. Where it's like, what's your dream? Oh, did yes. you ever do that kind of oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mine was a doctor. Didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so we had one of those for everyone in my class and I picked CEO when I was, I think in fifth grade or sixth grade. So really young. So that's what I mean. Like there were symbols, right? There were signs that this is something I wanted to do young. And, um, I picked that when I was young, that was like super young. I remember because my parents told me that that was like an interesting choice. They didn't expect me to do that. And then, uh, in high school, I was really obsessed with the movie, the social network. I don't know if you've seen that, the movie about Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. I was obsessed with that movie. I thought it was awesome. And I wanted to do something like that. So that was another sign of me wanting to, to be an entrepreneur. So it was, it was not like completely out of nowhere. There were signs, but most of the doctor thing was not really my vision. It was kind of like the vision that was given to me by my parents and my culture and my community. And particularly I grew up as a children of Muslim immigrants and my, my father is Syrian and my mother's Cuban. So double immigrant. I know for a fact for Muslim communities, they have very rigid archetypes of what career success looks like. And they typically uh, want their children to be in very safe, prestigious careers, which ends up being like be a doctor or be a lawyer or be an engineer or something like that. And doctor is always number one. So that's something that I thought that I wanted to do because culturally people told me I wanted to do that, but I never really felt passionate about it. So when I gave it up, it was not hard at all. It was one of the easiest things ever because I felt no actual attachment to it. And it just felt like I was growing up and, and learning that, oh, okay, this was actually not really my idea. This was kind of like an idea that was handed down to me that I didn't really question. So it was super easy for me to reject that. It wasn't a big process. I just love that you mentioned that cultural influence or, you know, even just like society influence. I think so many of us found ourselves in that situation where it's like, this is what we should do. This is going to look good on paper. This is going to be secure and all of that. And then we have these realizations and moments, but unfortunately for a lot of us, we actually don't act on them. You know, like for me, at least like 
I didn't act on this desire to do what I do now for a long time. Right. You know, for you, perhaps it was because you were younger, you were learning, you're in college, but I guess, you know, for those of us who feel a bit like nervous to take that step and let go of that vision that of someone else's vision that they had for us, what advice would you give to us? I think so much of the time we don't want to disappoint those around us. We don't want to disappoint our parents and whatnot. You know, how can we kind of navigate through that and just do the thing that we actually want to do? Good question. So for me as well, it took a while. I didn't show up in college and then just change. So I was in college for four years. First year, I didn't really take any action on this. Second year, I didn't really take any action on this. Third year, I started to a little bit. I had one summer internship that was very influential. And then my fourth year is when I actually took action on this. And then I, I really got involved in the entrepreneurship community. I started my company. All that happened in like the last year. So it wasn't sudden for me either. And the biggest thing is um, if you feel that guilt, like if you actually feel guilt to not do something, then it's going to be hard. I never felt any guilt. So mm, like I said, I, <laughs> I, I felt that this was like not really my idea and I don't actually need to follow it. So I didn't feel any guilt um, by rejecting it because I didn't, I didn't feel like mine. So I don't know how to get to that. If you feel like I want to do this because my parents want to and then you feel guilty about not doing it. I don't know how to move to that from that to where I was. Um, I didn't, didn't have that experience, but I know how from where I was, you just do what you want to do. And it's very straightforward from there, but I don't know. I didn't, I didn't have that experience. I think it's almost something that we can take away from what you're saying. It's I love how you almost detached yourself from it. It was like, this was never mine. I want to do what I want to do because I'm my own person. So I'm just going to go off and do that. I think it's almost that detachment piece. And I think that's something that for me and so many of our peers out there listening, it's almost just like learning to just detach. And as you mentioned before, like almost take that like emotional, that really strong, like emotional pull that you have to like the guilt and the thing, like just try your best to remove that, see things a bit more objectively, and then actually realize that, hey, well, it is your life. And as you mentioned before, if it does fail and if you do go down that path and it doesn't work out for you, it's cool because people fail all the time and people aren't paying as much attention to you as you think they are. Yeah. I mean, a few, a few other like random pieces of information that helped me. One is that I think everyone goes through, I'm sure you did as well, a cycle where you start off thinking your, your parents or your family are perfect. And it's like, they're like untouchable, you know, like they have everything figured out and they know everything and whatever. And then eventually you grow up and you kind of realize they're just normal people. They have flaws. They have biases. They're wrong sometimes. They have good things too, but like they're just actually kind of normal people. And the sooner you go through that process and the sooner you go through that realization, the sooner that you realize that whatever like, ideas that they gave to you, maybe you're not the best ideas. And maybe you should think about every single person's flaws and biases and everything that you come to realize about them in the context of that ideas that they had passed down to you. So the sooner you get to that realization, the sooner it's easy to get to the next realization, which is that not every idea that was passed on to me is a good idea that I should follow. Maybe I should think about which ones I should keep and which ones I, I don't want to keep. So that's that's one important thing. And the other important thing is that I, in general, if you, if you think about work as a percentage of your life, it is probably the largest percentage of your time um, for most of your life. So if you had to take someone's life and divide it into time spent in different categories, maybe 50% of someone's life, their waking hours is probably spent working. And then I don't know, other 30% is pleasure, you know, like you have friends and leisure and whatever, and then next 20% gym or I don't know, whatever. But the point is, I think the biggest thing is probably work. So 
if you don't enjoy what you're working, it's very hard to have an enjoyable life. It's the biggest component of your life. So I've always been a proponent of, I, I would never ever work on something that I don't enjoy because I don't know how I could really enjoy my life uh, if I if the biggest part of my life is something I don't enjoy. Um, and I don't really view my life as I have my work life and my life life. It's just, I have one life and I'm one person, it's all together. And that was something as well that always, when I, when I thought about that, I was like, I'm, I'm definitely not gonna do something that I don't enjoy for somebody else. It's just like, th- that seems like the worst trade-off ever. Absolutely. I'm like furiously nodding. You guys can't see me, but I'm like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, I love it. Okay. I want to talk a bit about the idea for Halo. So you're in your final year. You've had like this massive shift and you're like, you know what? I'm going all in on entrepreneurship. This is what I'm going to do. What did the idea for Halo come about? And what were the first few steps that you took to really get it off the ground? Yeah. So it was during my senior year of college. And I originally had founded it with one other person or the idea, I had the idea talking to one other person and then more people kind of got brought in and we ended up having four, you know, official co-founders. And I was talking to a friend once about how good online ads had become, Facebook ads, Snapchat ads, Instagram ads, how scarily good they had become as like, they were super well targeted. You would say something and then you would see an ad for it. And it was just, it was crazy how good they were. Uh, but we were comparing that to how bad the outdoor ad world was. And it's like the same. Like it looks the same as 20 years ago. It looks terrible. Um, and it just, it's like there's nothing, it hasn't innovated or it hasn't progressed at all. And the idea came from how can we use what made online ads really good and apply that to the offline world, you can call it. So technology and then data had become very sophisticated on the online ad side. And we thought that you could take that and apply it to the offline world, but no one was really doing that. Nobody was thinking about applying this technology to this industry. So that's where the whole idea sparked from. It started off just as an idea. Then we tried to build a prototype for it. And at this point, it's not a company. It's just an idea and kind of like a mini project we're doing. Then the prototype is received well. We want to actually set up a real operation. We want to get more units. We want to sell like an actual campaign. And then it just naturally snowballed into a company. But it started off as, uh, it started off really small, like everything. And it started off not as a company. It started off as an idea that we're working on. I love that you like clarify that for us. I think so much of the, like, so much of the time, like you'd read your story or so many others where it's like, you know, started this massive business from my college dorm room and, you know, next minute it was picked up by Lyft. And I just yeah. love that you're breaking that down for us because most of the time, honestly, all of the time, it doesn't, often start that way. So I guess for you, what were some of those early challenges and struggles when you were just that small, tiny team? You were, it's a project basis. You're trying to like get your prototype sorted. You're trying to gain a bit of traction. What were some of the struggles that you faced in the early days? Everything. I mean, everything was a struggle <laughs> because we we were, I think when we started, I was 19. My co-founders were like mm, 19. Wow. I don't know. So we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. And I probably made more mistakes than any entrepreneur I know. So everything was a challenge. We did we did probably everything wrong. And it was incredible amounts of trial and error. So I, like everything was was a challenge. We didn't know how to build hardware. Our first hardware was terrible. It was really bad. And it was it was so bad that it uh like fell off a car and and damaged someone's car. It was like yeah, it was terrible. Uh we had no idea how to sell ads not very much went right on the first time. It's like I said, like we didn't know what we were doing and we were just basically trying, we were trying everything, like crazy amounts of iteration. The thing that we did though is we learned really quickly. And when something didn't work out, we tried it again 
And then it was slightly better. And then we tried it again. And then it was a little bit better. And we just did so many rounds of iterations that eventually the final product was pretty good. But nobody saw the iteration, the terrible iterations before, like the 10 te- terrible iterations before. They just saw the final product at the end. And then they asked me, oh, how are you so good at this? And I was never really good at this. That's, that's the secret. When you ask kind of what was a challenge, it, the, I would reverse it. of like, what wasn't a challenge? Because everything was a challenge. How do we keep going when everything's a challenge and we just are not getting it right time and time again? Like, why keep going? I, I think same thing, mindset. I, I think the mindset here is you, you need to understand that everything's going to fail. By default, everything fails. And then if you try again, and if you, after many iterations, maybe something will work. And if you, if you uh, have that mindset and you understand that, then when the failures happen, you don't feel bad about them. You just think of them as part of the expected course of action or part of the process. That is the biggest thing. If you have that mindset, then you do that. And if you iterate on something 10 times, usually the 10th version is, is pretty good. If you iterate on something 10 times and every time is a little bit better than the previous, usually you get to a decent spot. So, but I think it's a good rule. Like if you, I've used this as like a 10 rule, like try something 10 times, but each time get a little bit better. And then uh, by the end of the 10th time, most likely you are at a pretty good outcome. If you're not at a good outcome, maybe it'll never be a good outcome, but do it at least 10 times before you make a conclusion. So, so valuable. So what was the time frame like? You ended up selling it six months out of college. So when did the 10 failures stop? What happened after you figured out, that, okay, I've got an okay product now, like we've failed enough. And I mean, failure always continues, but you know, we've got a kind of good product now and we want to try and grow this. We want to get a bit of traction. Like what happened after that? And at what point did you feel like you could pitch the company to lift or, you know, how did that kind of acquisition come about? Yeah, the, the failures never, one clarifying point is I don't think the failures ever stop. It's just that they change. So yeah. you figure out how to do some things and then you move on to new problems and it never gets easier. And this is something if you talk to founders who have done at all stages of the process, most people tell you that it never actually gets easier. The The problems just, just get either bigger or they just change. So you figure out how to do one thing and then you move on to the next set and then you fail at those. So but but you're doing the, the previous ones well. So maybe in aggregate, you're like having more successes, but uh, the failure never goes away. There's never a point where you you feel like I'm doing everything and I'm doing everything well and I know how to do everything. There's always some, you're always moving on to the next thing that you haven't done before and you usually fail. So, and, and fail is maybe like too aggressive of a word. It's not always like you completely fail, but you, you don't do it well, at least not as well as you'd like to. And most of the time it'll feel like you're failing because it, it'll feel like you don't know what you're doing. A side note for that, one of the more important things to do as an entrepreneur is manage your emotions throughout all of this. It's it's probably like the number one thing is you need to manage your emotions throughout all of this because your emotions will will bleed over into the team's emotions. And like a lot of entrepreneurs get burned out. Some people say that the, the reason why startups fail is they run out of money. That's the only reason why startups fail, which I think is right. I think it's not wrong, but I would add a second one. I think another reason why startups fail is that the entrepreneurs run out of steam. I've seen that happen a lot of time where the founders run out of motivation or they uh, get they run out of motivation or they run out of willpower. That happens all the time. And that is all about managing your emotions. How do we better manage our emotions? There's a lot of good resources on this. And I'm thinking in particular, there's a YC Startup School podcast by Daniel Gross, I believe. And he talks about this. And some of it is like sleep, you know, <sighs> diet, exercise, the normal just life things. Um, meditation is something people talk about a lot. I don't know. I'm not the most qualified on this, so I don't have the best answer, but I would say all of the above are important. And 
I would say that the the way you manage your emotions as an entrepreneur are not very different from the way you manage your emotions as a person. So however is the best way to kind of keep your composure in your personal life, then you should do the same things for being an entrepreneur. And I think it's often the different people have different ways of doing it. And, and that's totally fine. Uh, you see a lot of commonalities, which is which is like, you know, the things I mentioned before, sleep, diet, exercise, have good friends, so forth. I want to talk a little bit about creating your own luck. You know, I think so many of us, those of us who are listening to this story or have heard your story before might just think, oh, well, he's so lucky. Like, Lyft just approached him. Like, oh, my goodness. But what they don't understand is that, you know, I was doing a po- another podcast but prior to this and we're talking about that idea of creating your own luck and that if you stick mm-hmm. at it long enough, that luck will come. I'd love to hear your take on that and kind of – what your response would be to those who who may say, oh, well, you're just so lucky that they approached you and that this all worked out for you. I wouldn't disagree with that. I think <laughs> luck is a huge part of of it. And I think I got lucky too. So I don't disagree with that at all. And I think where creating your own luck comes from is mostly you at least need to go for it and have the opportunity for luck to strike you even. If you don't do anything, your probability of luck striking you is very low. But if you do a lot of things and you expose yourself to more opportunities, you kind of increase your surface area. You increase your surface area that like where luck can can benefit you. And that's what I would say. I would say, you know, go for it. And luck is going to be a huge part of anyone's success. And the way you create your own luck is you give yourself the most opportunity or like the most at-bats for luck to happen. And the more at bats you take, the more likely it is that sometime you'll get lucky and then that luck that luck will will help you. That's what I consider making your own luck. I don't actually think you create luck. It's just that you take more chances. And then if you take more chances as a num just strict mathematics, uh, you're more likely to have one lucky outcome. Mm. I love it. Oh, Keenan, we could speak for days, but I am mindful of your time. I've got a couple final questions for you. And the first one is what has been your biggest failure and win? to date? Biggest success obviously has to be, you know, uh, selling, selling my company to Lyft. Yeah, that has to be by far. I mean, obviously it changed my life and so forth. So, but that's a pretty boring answer. I don't have any really big failure that I can point to. And oftentimes I think a lot of the failures are not, a lot of the big failures that people make are usually failures of omission, not commission. So I don't think oftentimes you do something wrong but it's that you didn't do something and then you missed this huge opportunity. And oftentimes you don't, you don't even know the failures of a mission because you never, it's like a life path that was closed. The door was closed to you, but you never saw it. So you don't know that you missed out on it. And in that sense, I'm sure I have many huge failures of a mission. Like I think I should have gotten into entrepreneurship a lot earlier and I was lucky that it worked out. But if I had started freshman year, who knows what would have happened um, is one big one that comes to mind for me. And there are probably countless others that I don't know about, right? So it's like you don't know where the closed doors are because you didn't see them. But but that's something that I think about a lot. I think I think about if you were trying to take away, okay, what should I do from that? Uh, the takeaway here is that you should probably pursue more paths and you should go down more paths because you don't know where they're going to lead and you don't know where the closed doors are, where the open doors are. And everyone's had an experience where something that was seemed really small or it was not going to lead to anything or like meaningless. It was actually hugely impactful. And then it became just like way bigger and like one small event just changed the trajectory completely. And then you end up in this crazy position. Everyone's had that. So 
you can you can empathize with the fact that this probably exists in more places than the ones that I just experienced. And it gives more reason to the fact of go down more life paths and explore more things. And and it's once again, back to the like, expose yourself to more opportunities for luck to strike you. Yes, I love it. Kanan, over the last three years in business, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. Most recently, you were featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you would give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? Number one, the biggest advice that I tell people is to take more risk in all aspects of your life, but especially your career. This is, it's very similar to many of the things that we discussed before, but it, all, it comes down to the idea of things that seem high risk are not as high risk as they seem to you. The idea of, you know, if you fail a startup, it could seem like the end of the world, but it's really not. So things that, that uh, appear high risk usually aren't actually, or the degree is much larger in your head than it is in reality. And then the other thing is that risk and reward are always correlated. So if you want really big reward, you need to take big risk. And there, it's very easy, it's very tempting as well to take very safe paths throughout life. And I think, you know, low risk paths get you low reward outcomes. And I view that as pretty boring. And always available to you. So the number one thing is I wish I took more risk early on in, in my life, in my career, you could say, at school. If I had to pick only one thing, it would be that because it's the biggest thing for me. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. I, I can't really think of two and three. So good. Look, I just want to take a moment before I ask you the final question, Kanan, to acknowledge you for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, for showing us, in particular us kind of young, ambitious millennials that and Gen Z, that it so much is possible if we actually just believe that we can go out there and take risks and it's going to be okay. Like at the end of the day, it's going to be okay. And I think that's massive. And for that, we really appreciate you. Well, thanks. I think I would say the same thing to people who have inspired me. So it's like a cycle. Uh, I was I was inspired by other people who are doing way bigger things than me. And then I got lucky and I'm happy that I can ins- inspire other people as well. Lucky with a hell of a lot of hard work. Yeah, that's right. I love it. So the final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? It's a deep question. I think there's a, a local way to look at it. So if I'm just looking at uh, myself as an individual, what's the value for me to pursue my passion? And that part should be very clear. There should be a lot of intrinsic value. You sh- if it's, you're passionate about it, then you enjoy it. And if you're passionate about it, it probably gives you meaning. And meaning and uh, is a very deep form of happiness. It's not like pleasure where that comes and goes. So meaning is a very deep form of happiness. And Ultimately, it should make you happy. That's a, that by itself is very valuable on a, on a local level. On a global level, if you look at maybe society, someone doing what they're passionate about, people are more likely to be excellent or very good at what they do if they're passionate about it. Because if they want to do something, they will do it more. And if they want to do something, they'll do it better. And from a global perspective, that's also optimal because people doing things to the best ability uh, creates more value for the rest of society as well. So if you can imagine me and you both being completely mediocre, you know, in one thing that could create some value for the world. But if we did two different things and then let's say when we're doing mediocre, we both did them at a five 
But if we do two different things, we could both do them out of 10. 20 is better for the world than 10. So it's actually even optimal for uh, people to do the best work possible. And maybe you can poke some holes to this argument of like, what if the things that you want to do are not actually super valuable? So you do them really well, and that's good. But doing them really well is not that valuable for, for the rest of the world, which is which is fair. But I think uh, at least what we've seen, or at least kind of what, what I have noticed in, in the world, is that these two things tend to be a little bit more correlated than you think. Like people want to work on things. The things that people are passionate about and want to do usually are valuable for other people in some way. I love how you broke that down for us. Kanan, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Where can we learn more about you and Lyft Media? So you can follow me on Twitter. It's probably the best way. Um, Kinan Sala or at Kinan Sala on Twitter. We have a website, lyft.com slash media. Those are the two best places. Keep track of us. Perfect. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Remember, Peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>